Welcome to The Point. I'm Mindy Todd. The wisdom of uncertainty is our topic today. In an era of terrifying unpredictability, we race to address precarity and complexity with neat algorithms, crisp bullet points, and hurried tweets. What are we missing in our quest for certainty? Maggie Jackson is the author of Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you. Great to be here. So uncertainty, seen by many maybe as a negative, right? It can cause some angst and worry, but you see it differently. Absolutely. Uh, I think uncertainty uncertainty is unsettling. We are naturally born to feel uneasy when we meet something new and unexpected and ambiguous. I mean, that's for, you know, for survival's sake, humans need answer. But the many misunderstandings around uncertainty start with that moment of unsettling angst that you mentioned. Um, When we meet that uncertain thing, you know, maybe it's your first day on the job or you're in a traffic snarl up, et cetera, you know, a host of sort of stress hormones and chemicals flood the body and brain, um, which, you know, which which makes us feel uncomfortable. You know, your heart might beat and your, your hands might sweat, et cetera. But at the same time, there are amazing changes in the brain that are remarkably positive scientists are discovering. Um, For instance, your focus broadens, your working memory is bolstered, um, your brain becomes more receptive to new data. And so as one neuroscientist told me, uh, the brain is telling itself there's something to be learned here. So you're on your toes, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think of uncertainty for starters, and there's a lot more to it, but for starters, it's a kind of wakefulness. So how did you come to contemplate this idea of uncertainty and want to write this book? Well, I started off in a different direction. I had written about distraction and attention in the digital age and a lot about you know, what our technology was doing to us. I wanted to write a book about thinking in the digital age. What are we gaining? What are we losing? So the first chapter of the book was about uncertainty. But then it became the book, basically. Not only when I was talking, giving talks, people were really captured by this, but also I realized that, again, another misunderstanding related to uncertainty is that it's just a preface to good thinking. It's something to overcome. And then we get into the real, you know, the real stuff of good thinking. And that's where I started. I actually was really reluctant to pivot this book into uncertainty. And, but what helped me was that I kind of opened the door, peeked in and discovered this explosion of new research and medicine and business and science. People were beginning to discover uncertainty. It wasn't even something that was studied in psychology. Mm. So that was, that was remarkable. In the last, in the last few years, we've really learned a lot about uncertainty, how it works and its upsides. There's so much we're learning about the brain, right? Um, You write, quick, automatic, and assured. Know-how is synonymous with fluency built up over time. Veteran physicians diagnose from across the room, all the more so in emergencies. Fire chiefs make 80% of their tactical decisions in less than a minute. A magical ease seems the epitome of professional excellence, whether we are chairing a meeting or leading a battle. Experts long have been the people we trust to jump to a conclusion. Novices awkwardly lag behind. What are the roots of this facility? Makes What makes pros so quick and so sure? As I read through that, I was kind of thinking, well, isn't it, you know, practice and experience? So what, what is this? I mean, especially when you think of like fire chief emergency responders, they have all those drills. So talk a little bit about the role of uncertainty here. 
Yes, exactly. And you would think that this is the moment, you know, when the fire erupts and you're on the scene or when you're the surgeon in the operating room and, and you know, time is precious and, and you, you have to be that swaggering person, wouldn't you think you would have to be? You have to be sure because it's an emergency, but actually new research related to um, uncertainty and expertise, particularly, you know, is now showing us that um, our ideas about expertise are outdated, if not wrong. Um, basically, yes, as you mentioned, people accrue expertise by through experience, you know, that sort of semi-true idea of the 10,000 hours um, is not quite just that, but with practice and experience, you get facile. You, you know just what to do because you have this honed know-how, these sort of heuristic shortcuts. You know, you can recognize it's this kind of fire, it's this kind of, you know, problem in the operating room, but that's called routine expertise because so often people just um, you know, get stuck there, basically, and especially years of experience in many, many different fields from finance to sports to medicine are weakly or not correlated at all with accuracy and skill. So actually cardiologists who have been in the field in this in their profession longer have more likelihood of having patients actually die from a heart attack. Well, again, why is that? Because they become routine. And so this impressive facility is great when you're in a predictable, uh, AKA benign situation. When you've seen it before, hey, you know what you know what to do. But you begin to fail when you're outside of the comfort zone of your uh, expertise. And and so there's actually a new kind of expertise, which is adaptive expertise. Adaptive experts are the people who. Um, actually spend more time on a new messy problem than novices do. They are the experts who um, tend to evaluate more options rather than just one, and, which is a, a, a common problem. And then they also evaluate um, those options more deeply. So the diagnosis or what have you. And so study after study shows that th this is called progressive deepening. And these adaptive experts basically in a nutshell, know how to break the inertia of their knowing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sort of shadow side to knowledge. We get stuck in it, we get mired in it, and we get, uh, you know, we get basically kind of complacent. And so to break that, you have to know how to adopt beginner's mind, and you have to keep on the edge of your knowledge. So uh, these adaptive experts also, um, up, they extend, not just apply their knowledge. And I, I saw this for myself up in Toronto operating rooms where a surgeon, one of the top surgeons in Canada was just, you know, swaggering his way through an operation to remove the cancerous bits of a liver of a teacher from Canada. And I saw the operation come to a halt and everything fell silent and he started to sweat. He thought he'd made a lethal error because he treated it as, as if it was all routine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thankfully he did not, but he was a little off target in the liver. It was pretty amazing. Uh, and he exemplifies the kind of people, um, you know, as you mentioned that uh, the kind of experts that we, that we are our ideal. Yeah. 
And so you're sort of touching on this, but it, you also write, people typically spring into action based on what first comes to mind and thus too often wind up seeing the world through a lens of what they already know. That makes so much sense, right? Because, uh, you know, when we think about the predictability of the brain, like and what, what we've done in the past. So that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And and the brain is basically a prediction machine. And every day, every second of your life, this predictive processing is um, basically uh, equipping you to get through life. You know, you have to kind of predict that you are not going to see a tiger in the parking lot at work. You have, you know, kind of predict that, um, you know, when there's certain, my, my husband, when my kids were little and, you know, if he came home to our apartment and the newspaper in the mail was still outside, he knew it had been a bad day with the little kids, you know, so he, he could predict what yeah. was going on that enables you to operate. But you know what? Learning is a matter of surprise. It's not just rote associations. Mm -hmm. And that's why babies actually seek out what's in their environment that's surprising. You know, as one neuroscientist says, no surprise, no learning. And that moment of unsettling uncertainty, again, to quote another neuroscientist, Joseph Capel said to me, you know, at that moment when the brain is waking up and you're feeling unsettled, that's actually the brain telling itself there's something to be learned here. We've got to mm -hmm. update now. We yeah. have to update. It's interesting because you, you talk about kids in the book, too, and, and how the younger kids who don't have experience with it, they think so much outside of the box, right? So what if you talk about how children respond to solving the tougher tools in the box problem? Yeah, many of us have heard of the candle problem. It's become a little bit famous. And so people are given a, a box of thumbtacks and a candle and a match, and then they're told to pin the candle to the wall. This is the adult version. And so people just make a mess of it. They try to drip it onto the wall, et cetera, et cetera. Well, basically, they most people do not understand that the the box, the, the paper box that is holding the thumbtacks can be the platform for the candle. They can thumbtack the paper into the wall and et cetera. But, you know, and when the, and the box is beside the thumbtack, suddenly they begin to understand, they be, they begin to get past the functional fixedness. The idea that, you know, what was it made to do hold the thumbtacks? Well, kids, especially younger kids, like kindergartners who we, as, as we know, are so flexibly minded, they'll see this, a similar problem trying to get a lion off a, a toy lion off a shelf and there's a box. Well, they'll see whether or not it's holding other toys or whatever it's doing, they'll see that box. What, it, what can it do? Not was it made to do? Mm -hmm. And so they far outstrip even seven-year-olds in the flexibility and fluidity of their mind. And what they're doing is they don't have to get past their sureness in order to open their mind as we do. You know, we're so Again, it, it's a shadow side of knowledge. And so there's just incredible, wonderful, um, you know, studies like that that show that, um, you know, basically it's really easy to move along the routine, the kind of worn paths of our experience in the mind. Um, but really on a day-to-day -day basis, we sometimes need to strike out and discover that better solution or that original solution. And uncertainty is so woven into that. Yeah change is something most people do not like as well. Yet you write, studies show just being willing to expect change makes us more alert to shifts in the fabric of life. Precisely. Yes, exactly. So this is this is something that is makes sense, but comes from a lot of 
deep research in, in learning in dynamic situations. And if you walk into a meeting and the Monday morning and you're expecting the same old blah, 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 you know, you're probably going to miss that, uh, you know, look on your colleague's face or the subtle shift in the team um, spirit or what have you, because you're just, it, it makes sense. You're, you're basically closing your mind to that um, you know, wakeful uncertainty that we've been talking about. And so, um, you know, people who are more willing or able or, you know, willing, I guess, to lean into the uncertainty or unpredictability of life in general, you know, they, they, they don't expect life to be predictable. They expect, because it is, to life to be dynamic. And they're willing to kind of, you know, have that bit of extra effort. So in other words, get stressed when things are unpredictable, as in the pandemic and, you know, life today. Those are the people who are found to be more accurate in the in situations like that. And I, and I love there's this particular study about CEOs in the European Union. Um, you know, in 2009, there was a huge expansion of the EU. And it was sort of the opposite of Brexit, but really controversial. And so two business school professors went over to Germany, studied 100 uh, CEOs and asked, what did you think about what what what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, many, many were sure, oh, it's going to be good for my company. And many were sure it was going to be bad for my company. And then there was this sort of pool of CEOs who were ambivalent and they really weren't sure, you know, would, would it raise prices or, or you know, boost customers and et cetera. They weren't sure. Well, a year later, the business school professors found that the ambivalent CEOs were more resourceful and invented. They did things like open a new factory in the in Central Europe, and or, and they were more inclusive. They listened to more opinions. So again, that underscores that uncertainty is a space for possibilities. You know, we if we back out of it, we squander the chance to learn, and if we uh, you know, fear it and dread it and deny it, well, then we're also losing the chance to inhabit it, inhabit it and leverage it, do that exploration of the uncertainty and see the complexity that's already there in life. In a lot of ways, when you're talking about embraces uncertainty, it's really like opening the door for opportunity on, on, on any level, all levels, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, because of the way we're formed and you know evolved to predict what's going on to make assumptions to get very very good at leaning on the past in order to operate you know we are sometimes lose that sort of ability to live at the edge of what we know and in fact in a kind of macro cultural way i think that you know the, the way knowledge is set up in our culture and our society and our world today uh, it's that you know we're so focused on knowledge that we forget that there's opportunity as you say beyond in the not knowing the liminal the process not just the outcome the the doubt and the suspense you know sleeping on a problem that's uncertainty in action a daydream letting your mind drift that's uncertainty in action and i think one of the messages in my book is it's really possible to get skilled skilled at that yeah uh, tell us a little bit about the visit to the sleep lab and links between dreaming and learning i found this fascinating 
Yes, it's a, sort of a two-part story. Um, I went up to Boston and spent the night awake <laughs> in a sleep lab, uh, a, a big Harvard sleep laboratory. And um, you know, I saw a young student who was given a video game before she went to sleep. Um, but it, you know, they were not really interested in um, what had happened, you know, how she was sleeping, but more <laughs> how she was dreaming. And and basically what occurred was that the labyrinth and the mazes and the chasing of the video game occurred in a different form in her dream. And the scientist, Robert Stickgold at Harvard calls this memory evolution. So you're taking the experiences of the day and the knowledge of the day and kind of twisting it a little bit in your dreams. And we, we can see that, you know, you have, you have people and places and events that, that take a little twist. Well, what's occurring there is that your mind is sifting and sorting and curating basically the knowledge to find out where it fits into this great, wonderful, you know, architecture, associational architecture of our minds, you know, so you might have, uh, you know, sort of a cognitive center in your brain for paintings and, you know, there's some, you know, cer certain synaptic connections are related to impressionists and, and so the, the brain is taking that what I call fallow time. It could be when we're sleeping. It could be when we're resting. It can be when we're just pausing. And they've, in fact, studies show that, uh, you know, if you if you give um, else certain, um, you know, learning study uh, tests, I'm sorry, if you give Alzheimer's patients things to learn through a game or something like that, you know, they're actually, if they're pausing after the learning, not playing a game or doing something that takes focus or intention, they're actually able to learn and memory and, and, and their memory goes up. And the same is true with, you know, healthy young and older minds, you know, so by pausing after uh, accruing knowledge, we actually gain, um, you know, a better memory, but, the, but, but there's more to it than that, because one thing that's really important and related to uncertainty is that uh, forgetting is called a friend to learning. So this fallow time means that the memories, whatever you had been doing, uh, whether you know hearing a presentation at a conference or studying those vocabulary words, if you're a student, uh, your memory is going to fade and shift and change as your brain sifts and sorts it. And at this, and then when you try to recall to retrieve that knowledge, you, it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. It's unsettling. It's you, you can't you can't download it as we expect. But that process it, itself is strengthening your mind as well because you're um, bolstering the connections between knowledge. And so from these fallow times come insights and abstractions. So in other words, you gain a sort of umbrella, you know, meta view on your knowledge through these times when we think that we think of doing nothing yeah, at all. Yeah. Uh, but before I get to some of the forgetting, uh, back to the dreaming, it's, it's really interesting how powerful that is. And, and of course, we know sleep, we have to have sleep. But if you think of, of times where you've got some big problem or dilemma, and all of a sudden, you know, you're in that kind of half asleep, half awake, and you go, aha, I've got the, the like the answer just magically appears, right? Um, and it's just, it's all that stuff that's happening in our brains that we don't, it's just, we're just slowing down and we're stopping, we're processing and all of a sudden there's the answer. Exactly. And so often in society and in our lives, we expect 
answers to be instant. Mm -hmm. And we expect that rest and, you know, sort of non-intentional activity, cognitive activity is considered just, you know, unproductive and, you know, you know, just eradicated or cut it short or et cetera. But uh, what was the most important um, aspect of this work to me was that it showed me that our vision of the brain and the mind is wrong. You know, we so often um, equate the brain with a computer. So we use the vocabulary of uploading and downloading. We expect instantaneity. We expect it to be crisp and perfect. And that actually is, a, you know, kind of seeking a lack of change again. And basically, this wonderful research on learning as a you know mutable dynamic process and then retrieving as a kind of blemished but yet highly productive process shows to me the organic nature of the mind. And that's one reason why the scientist Bob Stickgold calls it memory evolution, because what goes in might not come out. Exactly. And I remember I was I was, you know, working with this um, classic psychology studies of a guy named Frederick Bartlett in Cambridge, you know, years and years ago. And he really kind of broke an open, broke open this nation notion. He broke open the notion of the dynamism of learning. And I kept thinking that he was talking about a, you know, search for memory. And then he, he actually was talking about something like effort after meaning, but I might've just actually been abstracting and and kind of interpreting interpreting his words in a way that helped my knowledge and so instead of getting it wrong there was actually perhaps a little victory there in my forgetfulness yeah and in your section on forgetting um why forgetting is is not a loss for many of a certain age forgetting does seem like a loss and creates a lot of anxiety right so talk a bit more about forgetting and memory because memory isn't really what many of us think it to be this sort of snapshot in time in fact we recreate memories which is why like you have siblings who remember situations differently. That's not how I remember it. Well, I remember it this way, right? Because our memories are not snapshots in time. Right, exactly. And again, by emphasizing knowledge as something solid and something, um, you know, that that's right or wrong, we're losing some of the greater lessons of what memory is, which is, uh, you know, a sort of system in our brains for moving our understanding forward and also for um you know enabling us to you know synthesize and abstract and 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 that's really really important because it's not something that you can just you know turn to your memory just like you turn to google and and get the answer mm -hmm. and so i think that uh, it's um you know, it's it's really important to to understand why forgetting might seem well. Again, why in the struggle to forget something, you might be actually reaping a greater gain than just that fact or phone number or or name that you're trying to produce instantly. And and I think that there's a there's a, a there's a larger process here. And in fact, the um, scientist. Bartlett long ago told a ghost story um, based on in, an indigenous, um, you know, folklore uh, to people. And over time, as they retold it, he found that they um, you know, kind of 
adapted the story. I mean, it didn't come out the same way. They're mem they they memorized certain things, but they made a canoe into a rowboat in the second telling. And they, and they, you know, there was a sort of a strange scene where a, a, a warrior died and something black came out of his mouth. And so people, you know, told about that as if it was breath, even though that hadn't been in the story. And so that's actually not a bad kind of uh, evolution of um, the memory itself. And maybe in, in one of the points here is that we're making memory our own. And that's how we actually um, learn. And, and instead of just cramming a fact in, like we're kind of a, a an empty Xerox machine, we really, really need to understand that, um, you know, we can, uh, you know, uh, you know, we can, we can really mm, admire and value and and even gain from the idea that memory is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And you know, I understand. Uh, you know, the people people sort of balk and 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 you know, it's very important to understand that you know, on a witness stand, <laughs> truthful memory is important. But at the same time, it's also important to understand that various memories put to are put together in a kind of a patchwork of truth mm -hmm. and so another way in which the mutability and the dynamism and changeability of memory is really enlightening and helpful is to it basically shows us that no one person knows mm. there's a lot of brain science in this book so i'm i'm wondering as you're going through all this what surprised you most there had to be lots of surprise because a lot of it makes sense but you know putting it all together what what going through all of that brain science, what stood out to you as the most surprising? Well, I think I'm, I think I was most surprised by the, I, one of the most things I was most surprised about was the idea that this unsettling nature of uncertainty is actually a kind of arousal and a wakefulness. And I, you know, I actually see it as a kind of honesty that it, you know, it puts us at the, at the edge where we can pick up on what's uh, new and changing. And I think that was really surprising. I also spent time with um, Head Start parents in, mm. in New Mexico. And uh, there are um, efforts now which are being uh, you know taken up by you know hundreds and thousands of families and children across the under uh, across the um, country now in Head Start programs you know to learn reflection reflective moments that is sort of the kind of stopping and thinking the pausing and inhabiting uncertainty that can help uh, the you know people in precarious and unpredictable situations. And so uh, that that is truly you know impressive and wonderful. At the same time, you know, one of the most interesting and surprising uh, aspects of this new work studying, you know, people who were raised in precarity and unpredictable situations is that the, there are great cognitive skills that emerge from it. And I think that so often we assume that life should be predictable and life should be stable and that that's actually the best kind of life. That when you think about it, you know, people who are curious are always seeking surprises by their knowledge or people who are, you know, creative are always seeking uh, originality. And so why should we assume that, you know, a comforting predictability is what is most important? And this new work called the Hidden Talents Research Program is discovering that 
you know, this vigilance of uncertainty is often something that emerges in children who are raised in situations where, you know, the childcare is unpredictable and the home life is unpredictable and jobs for their parents are unpredictable through systemic reasons that are no fault of their own. And so, but they, they accrue these survival skills. And so, you know, we can take that and link that back to what we all have inherently inside of us, the ability to get on our toes and wake up instead of running and denying uncertainty. And I think that was, that was a real moment for me when I felt as though as a mom, as a person, as a writer, you know, maybe I spent a little bit too much time uh, expecting the predictable in my world. And uh, I actually happen to be a since the pandemic, I'm a open water four season swimmer. I, um, you know, am based in Rhode Island and I swim year round now. Yes, with a wetsuit during the colder months. Um, but I had was constantly curious about why I'm actually was afraid of waves. I mean, I was not a big, you know, risk seeking surfer girl or anything, but uh, the pools closed and I took to the ocean and I, and I was, I was really um, trying to puzzle out why I love this so much. And it occurred to me finally that this is my daily dose of uncertainty mm. and by practicing uncertainty, look, you can look at the app you can know from experience, you can feel the wind outside your front door, but you don't know what you're going to get. And in fact, in the half an hour I'm swimming, it changes. And yet there's the joy, there's the exhilaration, there's being the, on the edge of the unknown. And I think this has really strengthened me in mind as well as body, mm. this experience. So that's one thing that, uh, you know, that actually sinks to, uh, you know, actual um, interventions and programs that are just launching to treat anxiety and to treat depression and worry and just be, you know, just playing the angst of that we all have these days about the state of the world. And so scientists and, and research psychologists are now um, treating these conditions, and they think that it's related to a lot of mental disorders with um, trying to help people become more, you know, quote unquote, tolerant of uncertainty. And by tolerance, they mean everything I've been talking about, leaning into it, practicing it. So there's one scientist who's going to begin to teach, to try to, uh, you know, bolster resilience in Columbus, Ohio, high schoolers by, you know, getting them to practice uncertainty a little more and stop hiding behind the certainty seeking mm. behavior of the phone just you know one homework lesson is to answer the phone without caller id and that's something a young relative of mine said that her generation would find terrifying but you know once you do that you know delegate at work or or you know improvise in some way in your life um that that actually don't plan what you're going to say for a difficult conversation just be open to it these are small practices in which we can inhabit the uncertainty and see that the possibilities inherent in the situation rather than assuming it's going to be disastrous and in fact young adults who are were scored as very intolerant of uncertainty, don't like surprises or, you know, just really feel as though it's threatening, were more likely to adopt denying, denial and avoidance and substance abuse um, practices during the pandemic, where those who are more open to uncertainty 
did uh, used problem solving strategies and struggled less mentally. They reframe the situation or ask for help, et cetera. So these are, you know, the, 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 our attitudes, our response to uncertainty is absolutely important. It's getting on the radar screens mm -hmm. of a lot of people. And if you can contend with uncertainty, then you can contend with life because life is uncertain, all, yeah. <laughs> always unpredictable. Yeah. Um, you talk about Jim Collins, a biomedical engineer, and you write, a few months before my visit to his lab, Collins instituted tech-free Friday mornings to his production, to prod his team of 30-odd scientists to read deeply, to interact in real time, and most of all, to daydream. Exactly. I love that. Yes, I know. I know exactly. And he, <laughs> I kind of found Jim Collins on the web while I was thinking about daydreaming and Googling around. And he had written an article for Holy Cross, his, his, uh, his um, alumni, alumni, he was alumni of Holy Cross. And anyhow, he tried to institute this in, in this multi-million dollar laboratory where people were doing very high level science. I mean, he's a renowned you know, um, scientist and biologist who's done incredible things in the world. And he really attributes it to this highly unproductive practice of daydreaming. He lets his mind go. He keeps it within sort of the rubric of a problem he's trying to do. So you can call it an, uh, a thought experiment. But this is absolutely crucial um, for, uh, you know, uh, sort of allowing our mind once again to process our lives or to process a problem without being, you know, leashed and restrained and, you know, um, try to uh, forced and hurried, etc. It's allowing the mind to do what it can do well. And, it, you know, it's interesting, the young scientists in the laboratory were not on board with this experiment. <laughs> I mean, they tried it, but some of them stopped going into the office. They thought it was highly unproductive. You know, they they you know it, it involved something that they just weren't willing to do, and um, they called a halt to this experiment. And Which is yet, too bad. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they weren't able to kind of lock into the um, you know the sort of hidden productivity that Jim Collins. Um, is able to tap into with his own daydreams. And, and it, you know, it might take some skill and practice. And one young scientist who was probably, you know, one of the, the best of the bunch, I followed and called him for years and finally wound up in his own laboratory as a, a young new scientist who's quite lauded for his work. And, you know, he came around. Mm -hmm. He actually said, that now he pauses and he daydreams. And what he told me was that when you're in life itself and you're producing and producing, you're you're kind of in the valley. You're constantly trying to move forward, et cetera. You're trying to work those problems, et cetera. But then when you're in a daydream, you get to ascend to the mountain and take a, lot, a wider, longer view uh, on, the, on the problem. And you wouldn't think that letting your mind drift would allow that to be but allow that but again it's about having faith in the human mind and also having faith in the fact that uncertainty can do far more for us than we admit yeah i was thinking i'm a daydreamer so i totally i totally got it but i can see where it would be uncomfortable for some people who 
just who are not daydreamers and really maybe don't know how, which is kind of what you're explaining, right? But, you know, it's it's back to that sort of sleep state where you wake up and you go, oh, I have the answer. Or you wake up in the morning after night's sleep and you've got that difficult problem solved. The same thing can happen with daydreaming. Yes, exactly. There's a sort of, um, you know, systems of the mind that are, uh, you know, you really go into what's called the default mode, which is, a, a, you know, a system, a sort of network system of the brain that's involved with um, thinking that's not goal oriented. Mm -hmm. And so the default mode was not discovered until very recently because scientists were always studying, um, you know, people who were doing tasks mm -hmm. and it was like, how was the brain doing that task? And was this task successful? And it, it's really quite an amazing story, but the scientists saw that the brain was highly active when they were just resting in an MRI scanner and between tasks. Mm -hmm. And so that led to this, you know, incredible, um, discovery of, of the default mode, which is, which is a, a huge issue. And, 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 you know, there's a lot more to it than just daydreaming, but it's, um, yeah. I was gonna say, it's like not actively thinking, right? Um, so yeah. yeah. And, and it's, you know, I'm thinking of my own of example, my own life, when I was reading about that, not actively thinking, not daydreaming, but um, I used to take mandolin lessons and, you know, I'm working on a piece and, you know, you just can't get it. And, and my teacher would say, stop, let's talk about something else. And I would be like, what are you talking about? Talk about something else. And then we'd just talk about some, the weather, whatever. And they go, all right, now play it. And you can play it. Wow. Yeah. No, I've heard stories like yeah. that. That's so really yeah, it's just like, you just gotta, it's like rebooting in a way, right? <laughs> we just kind of stop that train that you're on, take a minute to kind of pause and then come back. Yes. Right? And, yeah. and, you know, in terms of recovering a forgotten memory or getting unstuck or, you know, working with the mind's, um, you know, hidden kind of um, strengths, I think of it as letting, actually letting your brain catch up to experience, you know, because we're constantly stuffing it and be, you know, look, and one scientist talk, talks about looking outward versus looking in. And there are very few, because we're so wedded to screens, there are very few opportunities to do that looking in. Mm -hmm. And by looking, I don't mean, you know, again, forcing the problem, but just allowing the inner space of our minds to take precedence, because there's so much for us to curate and, um, you know, and, and basically digest, we're letting, we're letting ourselves digest. And, you know, T.S. Eliot has this great line in one of his poems, you know, we had the experience, but missed the meaning. Tell us about Steve DeLine, an organizer for one of the country's most innovative LGBTQ outreach groups. Talk about his approach and what we're learning about how it works. Sure. Well, I went to LA and I was canvassing with activists uh, for transgender rights. Uh, and it, although you know rights were protected in California at the time, um, they were trying to gain more supporters in opposition neighborhoods, which is you know very rare in political activism to begin with. And um, Deline uh, and uh, the um, leadership lab at a noted LGBTQ. Um, center in Los Angeles, where basically had when I arrived on the scene, had spent seven years trying to craft a conversation on a doorstep in ten minutes that would basically, you know, dismantle or you know make a dent in people's prejudice against 
gay people and transgender people. And they were making, they have now you know, scientifically proven made incredible strides. Well, one of the ways they did this, and this is sort of the social side of uncertainty, which I think is really important. It's not a solo game to mm -hmm. be uncertain, to, to accrue the humility of uncertainty. It's not a solo game. What they found was that they had been trying to um, basically, you know, uh, you know, force the message on these people. They were an opponent. And so they had a talking point and they had a script and they were going to just, you know, get through that conversation and then convince them. And that didn't happen. You know, people stonewalled and, and the conversations went on, but they weren't effective. And what they found gradually was they had to open their own minds. They had to allow for the person on the doorstep to not be just an opposition voter, you know, pro XYZ, they had to allow them to be an individual and they had to do some what's called perspective taking. And that's basically our grandmother's wisdom, walking a mile in another's shoes. And so if distance and, you know, well, I don't even need to introduce the topic of polarization to anyone these days. We know mm -hmm. the segregation, the distance, the, the, the sorting by community of politics, you know, the, the, the basic distance that breeds hatred can be dismantled or turned back by contact and by engaging. Well, how do you do that? You know, to one step and one very promising step is to take the perspective of another person. And studies show that if you just imagine the perspective, this is not empathy, it's like I know how they feel, it's cognitive empathy. So you're imagining the perspective of a murderer or a drug dealer or a political opponent and the results are amazing. You know, people are more willing, people who do this perspective taking are more willing to sit closer and help that person and others of their kind, et cetera, et cetera. So the um, leadership lab, you know, created these incredible conversations, which were uh, unscripted or far less scripted. It was very uncomfortable. I saw them training volunteers to do this. And they, you know, they said, you know, take off your sunglasses, lose the, no, the uh, clipboard, you know, see what happens. It's precisely that kind of improvisational openness. And I think what's really important about this point is that basically rather than seeing set in stone wrong of another person that you then have to convert you're actually seeing the potential and 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 there are wonderful scenes that i saw on videos and then in person where the the they the two people the lgbtq canvasser or the ally and the opponent and it was pretty virulent you know bias and i i heard it they kind of began talking and when one was open to the other they actually could see where there was a point of potential learning. They became individuals and then they actually could walk away having learned something from one another. So it was a really, mm. really strong and amazing case for what I call a kind of active form of tolerance. Yeah. And of course, we, we're looking at to the future and you have uh, some thoughts on artificial intelligence and it would seem uncertainty may not have a role with AI, right? Because because we want everything, we want these correct answers and everything all the time. But in fact, tell us a little bit what scientists are, are doing in, in the realm of AI and the I don't know robot. Yes. 
I uh, I loved visiting the I don't know robot and uh, working with it, and but in, in essence, and this was um, I've studied technology for a long time, but it, it was a really interesting kind of revelation that artificial intelligence is based since the 1950s has been based on a definition of an intelligence that means you know attaining a goal however the means that's you know how the rational idea of what intelligence is and so there are systems and models and robots are that are built that are just basically built to you know um you know stack the stack the boxes in the Amazon warehouse or to, you know, lift the patient in the hospital. And, and they're made to do that basically unstoppably. And so now some of the big, most important leaders in AI are trying to rethink the field radically and by making AI unsure. And what does that mean? It basically means that an unsure robot who's your housekeeper, instead of just fetching coffee the way it's been trained or programmed, they're actually able to stop and ask you, how would you like it? And you know, where, how, what route should I take to the store, et cetera, et cetera. Seems really simple, but it's so radical uh, uh, compared to the way AI is built today. And so this has moved from idea to reality, at least beta tested reality in laboratories around the world, um, this movement to, to make AI um, you know, unsure in order to make the, it more teachable, honest, uh, and stoppable, and therefore safe for humanity. And so this is, and I think one of the most interesting parts to this, not just the fact that it could save humanity, uh, and not just the fact that the in, these incredibly brilliant people are picking up on the strength of uncertainty and the potential of uncertainty for both human and artificial minds. One of the most amazing takeaways that I found was that the scientists again and again told me that by working with uncertainty, by building the humble, honest robot, they were learning about you know, investing these qualities in themselves. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because it's always been just, let's make the machine, let's mm -hmm. make it better. Let's throw it into the world. We'll see what the consequences are. They were able to do that. And so uncertain, and so basically AI, uh, unsure AI might be able to kind of hold up a mirror to our better selves. And, you know, we are so influenced by technology. I mean, you know, you're so influenced by your phone. And we've talked about the, you know, idea of the brain as a computer and, you know, the idea that things are sort of template-based and speed is best, et cetera. We're very influenced by our technology. What if we could be influenced and see uh, unsureness as a, a positive rather than a negative? And then, of course, what if we could role model that for each other? wouldn't until we get the ai unsure robot in our home maybe we need to role model that for each other and begin to respect uncertainty not denigrate it not see it as as weakness in a leader who pauses just momentarily to think uh carefully about a problem uh you know maybe we should see the daydreaming student as someone who might be ahead of the crowd not behind and maybe we should see you know our neighbor as someone who has something to say as aristotle once said 
everyone has something to say that's a little bit of the truth. No one person has all of the truth. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, that you know, they, they, this movement to AI is important in itself and can be kind of important for all of us as we understand that, uh, you know, certainty, I think, is kind of dead. <laughs> we, we're seeing the cost now. Mm -hmm. And basically, the future lies with uncertainty. That's where we can be adapt adaptable and curious and, and resilient. And that's where we need to be because the chain, this fluctuating changeable world is not going out just because we have a vaccine or two. Yeah. You've given a lot of uh, good takeaways for, I was going to say, what, what do you hope people take away? You just sort of summed that up pretty well. So I, I guess the last question I'll ask you is, is your thoughts on folks who fear uncertainty. How do we manage the fear of uncertainty? Sure, and I think I think we can start by understanding that it's natural to dislike uncertainty. I mean, we it's very natural to want that comfort of stability and predictability and not and not to be overwhelmed by the uncertain. But we can also um, really change our lives by realizing that it's our response to uncertainty that matters. And the fear of the unknown is, uh, really the royal road to angst, but the, um, you know, by not being fearful on, on, of uncertainty, by being, by understanding that we're probably going to be unsettled, but we can contend with it, we can learn from it, we can leverage it, as one physician told me, then we can really begin to um, be, I think, feel liberated. And uh, that writing this book, I felt was a very liberating experience because I, I can be a nervous Nelly. And time after time, I now feel as though I, I really am kind of ready to cope with whatever life throws at me and then make something of it because I'm more aware of all the possibilities within that curveball. Uh, and not and not you know feel as though I need to retreat from it. And what a better way to um, you know kind of live each one of our days. What isn't that a isn't that a new vision of what flourishing is? Yeah. The book is uncertain: the wisdom and wonder of being unsure. Maggie Jackson, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening.